Hello, hello, and welcome to So Curious. We are your hosts. I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. And I'm the Bull Bay. So Curious is a podcast presented by the Franklin Institute, a science museum in Philadelphia focused on celebrating human sciences and technology, which is exactly what this show is all about. We're so excited to be back for season three of So Curious. Last season, we looked into the science behind sex, dating, and relationships, talking about things like hookup culture, ghosting, and compatibility. And this season, we're talking all about mental health. But before we get into all that, we should probably introduce ourselves. My name is the Boa Bay. I'm a Philadelphia-based hip-hop artist. And for proof, you could just play my song right here. Yeah, I'm still out west. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm about to get a check. Yeah, I'm back at it again. And what about you, Kirsten? Who are you? <sighs> okay, Kirsten here. I am Philadelphia's token terminally ill stand-up comic. I was born and raised in the city of brotherly love. I have cystic fibrosis, and because of that, I've been working as an advocate for the CF Foundation. I've been doing stand-up professionally for six years, and I split my time between telling jokes. Like, I can't imagine having to care about a future in general. You know, like, I don't have a savings account. I don't wear sunscreen. <laughs> I love burning bridges socially. And yelling, go birds, unprompted, any chance I get. So, Bay, this season is all about mental health. So what is mental health to you? Mental health to me is, I guess, a part of your overall health, right? And making sure that you are well and functional and able and really just able to kind of like connect with the world around you, whether it be your environment or people, you know, and whatever gets in the way of that. My motto is mental health is health. I think mental health is kind of like the final most important science that not that many people treat as science yet. And it so very much is, right? And I'm excited to get to talk about like the facts and figures and data behind it and that there's so much more than just like, I feel happy, I feel sad and yeah. like all the actual things that go into it. Right. So we've got some amazing conversations about mental health for this season. One question I have is how did mental health become a thing? So our first guest, Dr. Greg Agigian, is a historian of science and medicine specializing in the history of social deviance. So let's welcome him now to hear his insights on the history of mental health. Greg, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about what it is that you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Greg Agigian. Yeah. I'm professor of history at Penn State University. I'm a historian of science and medicine, um, but I've probably spent most of my time doing research on the history of madness, the history of mental health, the history of psychiatry. Wow. Wow. And can you talk to us about how people thought about mental health in, in the past? Like how, how was that perceived and conceptualized? Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it always depends upon what period of time you're looking at and of course um, where you're looking, but it's, it, what's clear is that for throughout most of history, it's fair to say that every society has recognized that there can be states of mind and states of agitation and distress that we today would call mental illness. It's not gone by that rubric. It's not always been understood as something that falls under that, that sort of banner of something that you want to talk about as being akin to other kinds of diseases. For much of its history, particularly in the Western world, it's also been largely understood as something that affected one's soul, one's spirit. And so it oftentimes had very kind of religious and spiritual dimensions to it. Yeah. Can I ask, like, in your study, do you find that 
the discussion of mental health and the way that we treat mental health, do you find that it has gone in a linear progression, like it's only getting better? Yeah, I think as a historian, I would say that I don't think history tends to work in any linear fashion. And I think the history of mental health treatment and understandings of mental health have zigged and zagged and taken one step forward and three steps back and then another three steps forward multiple times. And it always depends on what we're talking about. We Are we talking about our understanding of what makes people tick and why it is that people suffer from certain things? Or are we talking about how, say, um, policies towards people with mental illnesses have evolved, or are we talking about treatments? I think it's fair to say that in large measure, there have been periods of time in which, by any measure, you'd have to say they've been very, very grisly, very, very dismal times. And those times have not always been the times that I think a lot of people sort of strikes them in their minds about when that would be. I think many people would think, oh, it must have been in the Middle Ages that that people with mental illnesses were treated in a re- especially brutal manner. Um, and that's really not the case. Like now it's 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Middle Ages gave us the concept of the hospital, a place where people who were vulnerable, who had no other place to go, could at the very least receive a kind of basic care in the sense of being given shelter, given a place to sleep, given food and looked after. It's in the 20th century, I think you can make a good argument, that we see the most horrible uh, things that have ever been done. Um, It's the period it gives birth to the concept of eugenics. It's the period of time in which hundreds of thousands of people were sterilized against their will because they had a mental illness and it was thought that this would uh, make for a a better society or a better race. And and of course, the 20th century, the Nazis uh, embarked on a project to kill 200,000 psychiatric patients uh, in one fell swoop. So I think we can definitely find um, inspiration at different periods of times and different moments, but there's going to be other times when we're going to, I think, have to admit things took a very dark path. How would you define our modern understanding of mental health? And when do you think the current understanding we're in right now began in society? I'd say that the way I think about it in in my terms as a historian who's looked at this from the ancient world up to the present, our contemporary conception of mental illness and mental health I think has a strong foundation in a kind of biological understanding of human beings, that that we are hardwired in a certain way with certain processes and certain chemicals working inside us and that we uh, are made up of certain genetic material. That kind of vision of who we are to me is something that I think really starts to first take shape in the 17th and 18th centuries starting in the late 19th century and then into the 20th century has come overlaid and superimposed on top of that an awareness in a sense that however there's all sorts of social and psychological stressors that can affect one's life and that can have an impact on that physiology and those two things together I think are the things that still shape our way today in our contemporary lives, still shapes the way we think about mental health and mental illness. And can you bring up any time period specifically in the past and some of those treatments, what were the conversations 
what drugs were used? What did that look like? So if you look back and say the ancient medieval worlds, the ways in which you would have uh, particularly medical people intervening in these areas would be to, because they believed that what was wrong with not just people who suffered from what we would today call mental illness, but when you had almost any kind of health problem, they believed it was an imbalance of humors that were in the body. So the key way you would try to help somebody and alleviate their symptoms is balance those humors. And you would do that through various means. It might mean prescribing somebody should get lots of sea air, or you might be told to drink some water, or you might be told not to drink water. You might be given certain kinds of herbal um, treatments of various kinds. And these could come in multiple forms. Some would be in the form of suppositories. You might be given things that would make you vomit in order to get rid of the toxins, things like that. When you start to get into the 19th century and the 20th century, that's when you see the emergence of the use, particularly of chemistry. And that's when you start to see first the use of sedatives of various kinds, primarily used to calm people who were agitated or people who couldn't sleep. And then over the course of the 20th century, you start to see other kinds of things ranging from malaria fever therapy, which was a therapy used in the early 20th century to give somebody malaria, actually, to promote, to put them into basically a long, sort of prolonged set of seizures and fevers. But you also have the development of lobotomy in the middle part of the 20th century, the idea of coring parts of the brain in order to sever certain connections. And of course, the development at the same time around then is electric shock treatment, ECT, which was also sort of operated on a similar kind of logic. And so we've seen over time lots of different options, but they tended to be sort of clustered around certain periods of time. I wanted to focus in on institutionalization, mm -hmm. treatment sites. When did we start using that as a tool? And talk about how that looks across the globe, because I know it looks different in different countries and in different cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good area. A lot of research has been conducted on this topic. So one of the things we have to remember is that basically until you get to, I'd say, the beginning of the 19th century. So for the vast, vast length of time, people with mental disorders were not put into any kind of institution. They were cared for at home, and if they couldn't be cared for at home or nobody could look after them, they were basically left to their own devices. And that might mean wandering the streets, it might be walking out into the countryside and, and living in a wooded area or something like that. You only start to see the beginnings of some sort of semblance of a place where some of these folks might go with the birth of the medieval hospital. But the hospital was never intended to be medical. It was not a, a place for incarcerating or putting people in custodial facilities for any length of time. It's only in the 19th century that we get the invention of the asylum. That is a place solely dedicated to the treatment of people with severe mental disorders. And it's so stigmatized. How did it 
did it always have that stigmatization or how, how did it become this thing that when we hear we're like, oh, an asylum? Mm -hmm. The asylum. The asylum did not have that kind of stigma attached to it. And one of the things when I teach about this and write about this is that I make an argument that the asylum is one of the most misunderstood objects in modern history. It's surrounded by, you know, if you watch TV, it's yeah. American Horror Story. I was going to say, I'm a huge, base pointing at me, I'm a huge horror fan, horror movie. I everything and so much stuff is around asylums institutions and usually around that time period you just discussed right yeah and abandoned ones have sometimes be turned into haunted houses mm -hmm. and the asylum was the solution to a serious problem and it was seen as a great reform at the time we have to remember that you have the introduction of industrialization urbanization a massive increase in population that takes place. And so the old way, the way in which people had done business for thousands of years was no longer tenable, leaving people to their own devices, stories of people who were literally like you would with a dog, putting a stake in the ground and tying a rope to it and having their family member out in the backyard because wow. they didn't know what else to do with them or people being kept in basements. So the, the asylum was seen and sold to people as we are going to create an institution that is friendly, that is warm, that is safe and doesn't impose uh, unduly on family members and provides a, a space for people to recover and recuperate. And these asylums, they were remarkable places. If you take a look seriously at the way they were built, how they were designed, beautiful gardens, big airy spaces rooms they had bowling alleys they had places you could you could go out for hikes they had places where dances could be held reading rooms so the asylum only begins to really become this place we associate with these uh, more egregious kinds of problems when we really get to around the, the early 20th century when they become overcrowded when they become warehouses but for most of the early period, for a good 30 to 50 years, they are really places in which I think most people would look proudly and said, you see, we're finally doing something right about this issue. Think about that term, asylum. What does it mean? Well, we know what is we associate with it today. People seeking asylum are people who are in desperate need to find a safe haven. And that's what asylum meant. So in your writing, you specifically note the problems with retroactive diagnosis. Um, can you explain what retroactive diagnosis is and your thoughts on it? Yeah, so retroactive diagnosis is something that gets engaged in a lot. And some historians do it, but I think the general public does it as well and journalists do it. And namely that is um, applying a diagnosis that we have today to people or a group of people in the past, right? So it's to sit there and say that, oh, you know what? I think, you know, Napoleon's problem is that he had ADHD, you know, and that explains why this, that, and the other thing. It's a real problem, I think, on a couple of levels. One is, I think, an issue that any historian or most historians would agree with, which is that we call it anachronisms, right? When we apply certain sets of terms from one period to another period, when you do that, we know as historians that it's not just a sloppy practice, but it means you're sort of imposing certain other standards on another society 
it probably means you're also going to miss things. You're going to misinterpret things. You're going to misunderstand the meaning of texts. And so on one hand, it's problematic historically. Clinically, it's also problematic. It's extremely difficult to sort of bring our categories from today and transport them backward in time and think that they're going to mean the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's my skepticism about that. Well, before yeah. we go, sometimes, you know, on a day-to-day walking through cities and communities, you do encounter folks. How do you process their conditions? And maybe even if you wanted to do something, what can we do and how can we better understand people that we encounter day-to-day who might be uh, dealing with some? Yeah, day-to-day. Day. I mean, one can only do so much. And that maybe that's true of just about every intractable health and social problem that exists in the world. You know, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of the idea that to my mind, the history of, of madness and mental illness shows that the most effective and the most helpful things that one can do involve lots of different people being involved on lots of different levels, but especially locally. It means helping shelters, right? It means when a ballot initiative comes up in your local election about funding and resources for social services for people, it means saying yes, (laughs) okay? Take that hit, agree to pay more taxes to invest in these kinds of things. And then when you see certain kinds of facilities out there that are doing this outreach for people, maybe it's transitional housing for people, things like that, that means providing aid for them and whether that's volunteering or maybe some financial help as well. So to my mind, what's required and has always been needed has been support networks. This I think it has been shown time and time again in history is that Oftentimes, people with mental illnesses lack the kinds of resources, the support resources that maybe other people have, or that even if they have those things, they need more, they need additional supplementation to that. So I think providing people with multiple levels of assistance for all the different challenges they face, this to me is the thing that I think is most needed. Um, in addition to trying to do your best to avoid stigmatizing and, and isolating people who need your help. That's mm. great. That's a great place to leave it. We love yeah. being able to end on like action items like that. So that's a, that's really yeah. awesome. That yeah, we can. There's a lot we can do. Local vote. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Thank nice you. chatting with you guys. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much to Dr. Gigian for coming on to talk with us. I feel like I learned so much. Yeah, mental health is one of those things you never really think about as having a full history behind it. It's kind of an exhaustive topic right now. You hear it all over the place, but Mm. really we're at the precipice of new understanding and new science and new studies about mental health because, you know, the history of it, people were kind of just figuring it out and it was all very new and wasn't a lot of like updated science yeah. on these things. It's like when we interviewed the historian on marriage last season when we yeah. talked about sex, love, and relationships. And I was like, yeah, I guess marriage does have a history. <laughs> like, like love and mental health. I'm like, they had that back then? That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I thought we invented that. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Well, now that we know some background info, I think we're set up nicely for the rest of this season. And in this season, we also have a new segment to share with you all. We are joined here by Marguerite Nicosia from the Shanti Project to teach us some mindfulness exercises and explain the science behind how they work. Yeah, but before we start, could you introduce yourself and explain what the Shanti Project does? I'd love to. Thank you, guys. 
Shanti Project is a nonprofit based in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania. We have been doing work in our community for 10 years. We began teaching yoga in the prison system and had such great success with that. Seven years ago, launched programming to teach mindfulness in public schools. It's called Calm, Kind, and Focused. And recently, Shanti Project has published a research paper in April of 2021. It was published in the Journal of Child and Family Studies, and that's available on our website. But basically, the research shows that mindfulness intervention programs teach children how to manage their emotions better. It's part of their social-emotional learning, and it's increased positive behaviors and decreased problem behaviors in the classroom. Teachers have seen kindness shown to each other. The teachers benefit from the mindfulness programming as well. So it's pretty wonderful the results that they get, and I'm very, very honored to be working there. Awesome, awesome. So I have a question. It's a bit of a callback question to season one of So Curious Podcast. The theme of it was Human 2.0 and just like body hacking, wearable technology, pills, and different things like that. But something simple as breathing can slow down your pulse, your heart rate, your cardiovascular system. Can you talk more about what that might do to the brain? So the simplest way to explain it is that breathing calms your nervous system. And the science of that is there's something called the autonomic nervous system. It's it's broken into two parts. So one part is the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is what happens when the part of your brain, the amygdala, um, when we talk to kids, we talk about the amygdala being the watchdog. It's part of our survival instinct. It's what senses danger or when you are faced with stress, your amygdala will activate and your sympathetic nervous system goes kind of on high alert. And what happens in the brain is there are other parts of the brain that govern thinking, which is the prefrontal cortex, so thinking and learning. And then the other part of the brain, the hippocampus, which governs remembering and storing information. When the amygdala is activated, those other two parts of the brain kind of go offline. So the way we explain it in kids programming is when your watchdog goes off and alerts you, the prefrontal cortex, which is, we refer to it as the thinker, goes offline. Hippocampus, we refer to that as the librarian. Your librarian goes offline and your watchdog is in charge. So what happens is by naming an emotion, just the simple act of naming the emotion that you're experiencing creates a pause. And then the breathing that you do brings those other two parts of the brain back online. So that's the brain science part of it, but the physical body part of it is involved as well. And there's something called the vagus nerve. It's a cranial nerve, so it begins in the back of your neck and it goes all the way through your torso. Let's all do it right now. Let's do this together because this is cool. Absolutely. Go ahead and take your hands and just put them on either side of your ribs. And now what you're going to do is when you breathe, you're going to feel your ribs expanding side to side. So you're really going to take a nice full breath. So just go ahead and breathe in and expand your ribs and then breathe out nice and long and slow. And so that simple act of taking a deep breath. And in fact, if you take three in a row, it's the perfect reset for your nervous system. Because what that does is you are massaging that vagus nerve 
inside your body by taking those deep, they're called diaphragmatic breaths. And basically you are just filling your torso, not just your lungs and your upper chest and not just your belly, you're filling your entire rib cage and that's considered diaphragmatic breathing. And so you've actually like kind of massaged that vagus nerve and three breaths in a row is the magic number. I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) It's very cool. Awesome. And how can we find out more about the Shanti Project? Well, it's shantiproject.org. And by the way, Shanti is a Sanskrit word that means peace. And I love telling people that because I just think it's the coolest thing in the world. So shantiproject.org, we've got a beautiful website. We have a YouTube presence. We're on SoundCloud, so you can find meditations on our website. It's really, really a great resource. Awesome. And I'm just going to spell Shanti real quick so everybody online um, can look us up. So um, it's Shanti, S-H-A-N-T-H-I project. Dot org. Yes. Yes. And next week, we are going to be learning all about emotions. Where do they come from? Why do we feel the things that we feel? How do we deal with them? Like almost anything else we express or identify or do. It has to do with whether we've practiced it and whether it's been role modeled. All that and much more. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. We have new episodes coming at you every Tuesday this winter. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. If you are thinking about integrating podcasts into your personal brand or business, check us out at radiokismet.com. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson and Emily Cherish of Radio Kismet. This podcast is also produced by Joy Matafusco, Jatri Das, and Aaron Armstrong of the Franklin Institute. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our assistant producer is Seneca White. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger, and our audio editor is Lauren DeLuca. Our graphic designer is Emma Seeger. I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. And I'm the Bull Bay. See you next week.